Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The theme for Reconciliation Week this year was be brave and make change. And I think as I've got uh, older, I've become slightly braver. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, quite often now I'll sort of try and back myself in more than perhaps I did when when I was younger. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, we bring you the fifth instalment of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Julie Ann Guevara, Group Manager of the Strategic Policy Group in the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Julianne talks us through her experience in rising to the challenges and expectations that come with being the first in many things and shares with us her personal views on recent changes to Indigenous policy. We hope you enjoy. I'm Gay Brotman. Hi, everybody. I'm Meg Tapia. And we're delighted you could join us for this month's conversation with Julianne Guevara on the eve of NAIDOC Week. NAIDOC Week is a chance for all Australians to learn about First Nations cultures and histories and to take part in celebrating the oldest continuous living cultures on Earth. It's also a time to celebrate the many who have driven and led change over generations, the champions of change, the champions of equal rights. Julianne Guevara is one of those champions. She's the first in her family to be university educated. She's Australia's first Indigenous female ambassador, and she's Australia's first Indigenous ambassador for gender equality. Julianne, it's great to have you here with us today. Can you please begin our discussion with an acknowledgement of country? Darawa nuna, darawa nunawal, yangum nanawiri dunimanyin, nanawalwari, darawawari, ningala dindi, wangarilijinyin. This is Nanawal country and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much. I have goosebumps <laughs> from listening to you do that. That was amazing. Um, okay. You would have been asked this a million times, what is it like to be the first Indigenous female ambassador for Australia? Um, I'd have to say it's been a a great honour for me and and particularly my family. I mean, when I found out that I was uh, going to Spain as Australia's ambassador, I really immediately thought of my family because... um, I am where I am because of the contribution they've made to supporting me throughout my life. Um, yeah, it's I, I took it as an honour for myself. I took it as an honour for my family. But, of course, it's a great honour to, to be out there representing your country. Um, and uh, it was funny. When I applied for uh, a joining foreign affairs and trade uh, when I was very young, I think it was about 21 years of age, you know, I said uh, I'd always imagined – 
you know, representing my country. And I knew I wasn't a great sportsman and I didn't have the singing voice of some of my relatives. So <laughs> I had to find another way, obviously, of representing the country. And yeah, so I applied for <laughs> foreign affairs and trade. Um, but yeah, the, the, the moment that I found out, I was really quite struck. I mean, I called, you know, my, my father, obviously, um, uh, shortly after I, I found out, but I, I really reflected on sort of the lives of my my grandfather and my grandmother, who were really instrumental in supporting me um, when I was younger. Uh, you know, to basically get through high school and university and all of those things. Um, and yeah, that, I think those were the things. I mean, the one thing about being the first is. Uh, you feel a, a, a great sense of um, responsibility. <laughs> you're, you're very conscious that you want to set the right example for people who come after you. Um, and I think, you know, you really do also um, think to yourself, well, yes, you, you want it to seem like it was the obvious choice, uh, you know, to pick uh, an Indigenous woman to, to do this kind of a role. And in fact, why hasn't it been done before? And surely... <laughs> They'll, yeah, surely it's you know simple to do many many after. So it's it's all of those things that I think kind of went through my mind at the time. Can I ask? Did you always think it was possible to be an ambassador as an Indigenous woman? Uh, certainly, when I joined uh, Foreign Affairs, so this was the sort of mid mid nineties. I mean, there weren't a lot of. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in in the department at that stage. I'd say there was probably less than twenty. Um, and the most senior, um, uh, Indigenous person was an executive level one. So there was no SES. We'd, we'd, we'd never had an SES, uh, Indigenous officer. So imagining being, uh, an ambassador at that stage was, yeah, I, I think it was hard to imagine that that would be the case. Um, certainly, as I said, I think, you know, all of us had aspirations of going overseas and representing, you know, our country, but, but certainly not uh, imagining at that stage that one of us was going to, uh, you know, head a mission overseas. And it wasn't, in fact, until um, a, a, fr a friend of mine and colleague, Damien Miller, became uh, the first Indigenous man and the first Indigenous ambassador for Australia, and that was 2013. So, you know, I joined 1996 and it took until 2013 to actually have uh, an Indigenous ambassador. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we all sort of, grew up, if you like, in the department um, um, together and supported each other uh, through that journey. But, yeah, it is it's it is amazing now to see sort of, yeah, uh, you know, a whole cohort of people sort of who grew up around that time and, you know, are, are proudly representing their country as ambassadors and high commissioners these days. Can you just go back to the influence that your family had on you, uh, your parents, your grandparents, and just talk us through in terms of the influence did they did they encourage you to aspire for a career in the foreign service did they encourage you to go to university because you're the first in your family yeah. did they encourage you through your educational journey did they basically say to you we want you to be a, a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> they're your two career options so what was the what were the how what influence did they play not just in terms of you reaching the heights that you have yeah. and becoming such a leader, but what influence did they have in terms of the the values that drive you? Yeah, so my um, my grandfather is from the Torres Strait, so he was born on Arab or Darnley Island, as it's uh, called in English. He was a um, 
a cane cutter and uh, a pearl diver. So it was, of course, counter-seasonal sort of um, labour, labouring roles. Um, and my grandmother is from from Yarrabah, which is an Aboriginal community, sort of just the opposite side of Trinity Bay from from Cairns. And um, I mean, uh, neither of them had had, you know, the opportunities that, that I had had, but they were really hardworking people. Um, and very committed to sort of community. And um, I recall hearing stories about them when I was younger where um, in days when, in fact, there were restrictions on Indigenous uh, people, uh, you know, being part of uh, social social gatherings, they actually started what they called the, the Coloured Social Club uh, in Cairns so that they could organise weekend dances um, for people by... Um, my my grandfather played uh, a mandolin and also the guitar, and you know they used to get people together and and you know organize these social events. So they were really very kind of community minded, and my grandmother was like that through much of her life. Um, she was on boards of um, you know an Aboriginal um, alcohol and and drug rehabilitation centre in Cairns, and in fact when when I was at uni. Um, she got me to work at one of the the centres <laughs> uh, on my university sort of holidays and sort of, you know, it sort of really, you know, leaves an impression on a young sort of teenager to 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 work in a in a centre like that. Um, but, yeah, they, even though n- neither of them had had the sort of opportunities I had, um, you know, they were always very encouraging and always somehow assumed that I'd go to university and, you know, go on to have sort of a, a career, a professional career. Um, when I was younger, I actually thought I was going to be an accountant. <laughs> Hence why? why I studied. A, yeah, I, I don't know where that sort of came from. I think it was, um, I do recall one instance where uh, my father went to see, you know, our family accountant when I was younger. And to me, I, I must have been very young and, um, you know, they sort of had a very friendly chat. It was sort of more about their sort of social connections. And then we walked out and, you know, we've got this bill for, <laughs> I can't remember what the price was, but it seemed like, oh my goodness, it seems like a fun way of earning money. Earning money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, yes, I mean, as I went through, so I did study commerce. Um, I studied commerce with honours at James Cook University and um, it was probably not until my last, in my honours year, where I started seriously thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do. And I, I did an internship over one of the vacations um, at PwC in Cairns at that stage and um, and thought, oh, well, actually, I'd be interested in doing something also um that was a bit more on the kind of civil service side. So, in fact, in those in that stage in the nineties, you actually could sit a public service exam, a broader public service exam, and so I did that in a hall in Townsville. I uh, and it, and you could put down three uh, agencies that you were interested in. So I put down finance, treasury, and foreign affairs. And foreign affairs, in part, because some of the subjects that I would I was doing in that last year sort of took you to looking at sort of business models in the Asia-Pacific and so looking at the growth of chables in Korea and what was happening in Japan and, you know, the establishment of some of the regional architecture. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And in fact, yeah, in the end, I ended up writing about some of those um, themes in my, because you set the, the public service exam and then if you were lucky, you know, one of the agencies followed up and you set subsequent exams. And I did that with DFAT. And yeah, so I wrote about, 
you know, growth of APEC and, you know, what might happen in the Indo, in, 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 mm. in the Indian Ocean region as well, because we didn't have any architecture in that space at that stage. And so, yeah, that's, you know, it was a, it, interesting that I, yes, I, and so I took a bit of a detour from the original path <laughs> of becoming an accountant, but it's been, you know, a wonderful sort of experience. It's been an amazing journey that you've had. Far North Queensland is a long way from Canberra. So thinking back to that time when you first moved here, what was that like for you? Were there moments where you felt out of place or did you always feel like you belonged? No, <laughs> I think it's fair to say I, I didn't feel um, particularly comfortable. And in part because, yes, when you're, you know, when I was in the work environment, as I said, there were only a handful of us who were Indigenous in the department and there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I did... I think in the first few years, meet uh, a number of wonderful people, including on my first posting, um, I was posted to India, who really did support me. But I'd have to say in those first three to four years, there were a number of times where I thought, "Mm, maybe this isn't for me. I I don't feel like I necessarily uh, fit in. Uh, So so how did you persevere? Uh, I really enjoyed the work. So, I mean, when I think about, you know, what it is that we were doing and, and, and trying to make a difference to sort of, you know, some of the bilateral relationships. I mean, I, my first posting, as I said, was was to India. And uh, the year before I arrived in New Delhi was the, the year that Pakistan and India had both conducted nuclear tests. Um there was, of course, a series of measures that the Australian government um, put in place in response to that. Uh, we withdrew the defence attaché at the time. You know, there was uh, other measures as well. And so the whole time um, that 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 I was in India then, so the next sort of three years was really about, you know, re-establishing, rebuilding the relationship. And uh, we had... Uh, Uh, It was Prime Minister Howard at that stage, so um, he came through and that was the first prime ministerial visit we'd had in India. I think it was for about 10 years. So it was quite a, you know, significant thing. So that, the work was fascinating um, and I really enjoyed it. And as I said, there were a few people um, and colleagues of mine who were really supportive. So when I had a rough day, <laughs> they were there to say, look, it's okay. You know, these, there are ups and downs and, and, you know, and you really should persevere with this um, because we can see potential. I'm glad you did. <laughs> and, and you only left the department a couple of years ago, right? So was it yeah twenty twenty one? So to my current role, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so so yeah, I I I had sort of twenty five years wow. continuous years in in foreign affairs. Um, yes, before I moved across to uh, the National Indigenous Australians Agency. So yeah. in those twenty five years, mm. looking now at the way that DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, supports Indigenous people, supports diversity. Yeah. It's come a long way. It has, Are there things though, are there barriers that you still see and you think, oh, I wish that could be a little bit different? Um, I mean, I I sort of do reflect on the journey and I do do see, you know, there's been a huge amount of change. So I, I think back to the early days when, you know, a number of us sort of got together and said, look, you know, we should really look at making sure we have, you know, um, 
very deliberate Indigenous recruitment and career development strategies in the department. And, you know, it, it was great to see management sort of in the agency really take that on on board. They also developed things like this is something called the Indigenous Task Force, which aimed to try and pull together not only the sort of HR issues, but also the Indigenous policy issues, you know, be that at the Human Rights Commission or intellectual property and knowledge issues out of the trade negotiation and pull it all into kind of a one forum sort of every quarter where, you know, we could actually really look at all of the issues that affect or Indigenous people could make a contribution to. Um, and that and that started, I think, again, that would have been sort of the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, we've seen this kind of progressive, um, uh, you know, increase in measures to kind of, kind of support Indigenous, Indigenous staff. And then, of course, having a few of us now become ambassadors. So, you know, I always, I mean, it's great having a 25-year career because then you can actually like map a trajectory and I can see you know, improvement over that time. So, yeah, while, while there's been times which, you know, numbers have declined and, you know, if you just looked at that that particular point in time, you could be, you know, a little bit despondent. But if you look at the longer-term trajectory, I think there's been some really positive things. And, you know, look at the policy side, of course, we had our first Indigenous people strategy back in 2015. Um, then, of course, just uh, last year, um, Frances Adamson, before she left as secretary, did the Indigenous diplomacy agenda. And, of course, with the a change of government uh, just a, you know, a few weeks ago now, um, there's a commitment, obviously, by the government to have its first First Nations ambassador and also kind of the establishment of a Office of First Nations Engagement. So, yeah, if you follow that trajectory, you know, we're definitely sort of, yeah, on, on the right, going in the right direction. So you were 25 years in foreign affairs in a variety of roles in multilateral trade as head of mission, as the ambassador for gender equality. Mm. That's that's a significant contribution in, in the foreign service. What made you then decide to move into the National Indigenous Australians Agency. It's a big move after someone who's had such a prestigious career in the Foreign Service. So what was it that, what was, what, why did you move? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly feel like I still have a contribution to make in terms of, uh, you know, the international and, and, and foreign policy. But underpinning much of what we represent overseas, of course, is what we do domestically. Um, and I was very conscious that I've never actually worked in a domestic agency. And it's interesting, you know, when you're overseas, um, and I was really struck by this, of course, when I was in Spain, and it may have been in part because I am Indigenous, but certainly the amount of questions you get about um, Indigenous Australians in the context of human rights issues um, and, and a perception of what Australia is um, that, you know, it did sort of, I did always think to myself, well, you know, I wonder what it is like actually, you know, to be working on those issues. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I think over the last couple of years, um, the previous government had uh established a new national agreement on closing the gap and uh, for the first time it was a the the national agreement was to include all jurisdictions so it was of course commonwealth state and territory governments and local government but it was in partnership with aboriginal community controlled organizations so um 
you know, this working in partnership with Indigenous people is a is a really kind of significant development. And over that same time, you know, there was work starting to happen on, well, how would you actually go about having a First Nations voice? And so there was a co-design report that was written, again, under the previous government. And there were sort of these green shoots of, um, you know, good, good policy um, making, you know, it was very deliberative, it was very consultative and certainly tried to take into account the perspectives of Indigenous people in the way that the policy recommendations came about. That really, I thought, was quite interesting. And yeah, someone had sort of, you know, reached out to me and said, would you be interested? There's this role. And um, and I thought to myself, well, yes, why not? It does kind of really align with, I guess, some of my own own values and what I like to kind of um, focus on in terms of, you know, areas of, of work. Um, and it, I guess it's, yeah, it, it, again, it's sort of as you get sort of further into your career, I guess you are looking at those things that try, you know, that do try to align with your own kind of values as well. So, mm. and, and I know that one of the attractions for this role for you was just the the impact that you could have in terms of our uh, reputation internationally. Exactly, yeah. uh, Particularly from that first-hand experience of yeah. those questions in Spain about yeah. what our what the situation was for us Indigenous Australians, what was our record on human rights. Mm. So do, can you just talk us through that in terms of how you see this role as advancing that and, yeah. and these initiatives as advancing our reputation not just here in the region but also right throughout the, the world? Yeah. So, I mean, the, cl- the closing the gap obviously is, is really directly targeted at trying to improve the lives and livelihoods of, you know, First Nations people. And as I said, I think a lot of our challenges in the past have been around that alignment. I mean, you know, there's uh, no lack of kind of goodwill on the parts of governments at various levels to try and, and make a difference. But sometimes, and you can see it in very practical examples, the disconnect that happens between what a state and territory government might be doing compared to the federal government. And, you know, they're, they're consulting with the same Indigenous communities and perhaps, you know, focusing on slightly different things and then as a consequence rolling out similar but slightly different programs which affect people's lives. And so trying, I think, and through the national agreement, bringing all those, as I said, levels of government together and having a direct uh, partnership with with First Nations people, you know, I think that those are the things that will make a difference to that, that the lives of, you know, First Nations people and as a consequence, you know, there, there, there will hopefully be those sort of changes in the way that we're perceived um, internationally. Similarly, I think, you know, efforts to try and um, provide a voice for First Nations people in setting policies and programs, which is, you know, the critical part of, of, of voice and, you know, now with the new government, the Uluru Statement of the Heart implementation, which, you know, is, is it absolutely vital when you think about, you know, what's happened in sort of, for example, the UN Declaration on the Rights of, you know, Indigenous pe- uh, peoples. The whole idea is about, you know, underpinning that is about self-determination and having the ability and the voice, the, the voice to actually influence, you know, policies and programs that affect your life. So, yeah, uh, you know, I do, I do think um, what we do domestically really counts. Uh, and, and it counts in terms of then how we're perceived. So it's that matching of, you know, Australia has a wonderful reputation internationally for promoting human rights, um, you know, promoting gender equality, but we have to live that 
and people and you know other countries in our regions have to see that we demonstrate those values and what we do. Um, and so there is that real connection between what we do domestically and what we do internationally. And I, you know, I think for me, I'm on a sort of a personal journey of exploration on on that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, um, I wanted to ask you about something that I read in a speech that you gave. Mm-hmm. You use the words engaging with authenticity mm-hmm. in the context of engaging with our region and in the context of national security. Um, and I wanted to explore what you meant by that. What does engaging with authenticity with our region mean? So I think it goes back to the point that I spoke about earlier that, you know, Australia as, you know, I mean, we've obviously at various points called ourselves different things, but, you know, a middle power trying to influence our, our region. Um, you know, we've been a leader in advocating for things like human rights in our, again, in our region, uh, gender equality in our region. Uh, it's important for us to back that up with what we do uh, in a domestic context. So the engaging with authenticity is, um, it's just like fundamentally like human relations. People can see through (laughs) if you are not, um, if you're saying one thing uh, internationally but actually doing something different uh, domestically, people will see that. Um, you know, and it's like, yes, I'm in normal, normal life. If you say something in one context and actually turn around and say something in a different, in a different context, people will see through that. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it is important for us to engage with authenticity. And so, you know, when people asked me questions, um, when I was in Spain as the ambassador, well, you know, what, what about the treatment of, of Indigenous Australians? You know, children were taken away from their homes. As I would say, yes, that is a true, you know, and if you look back at the Bringing Them Home report, of course, which was released in the late 90s in those stories, and I'd be, you know, happily kind of pull out the quotes of well, what children recount or mothers who had their children taken away, their accounts of what happened. And But then you have to kind of track the journey since then as well. And again, you know, as I said, with the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Rudd's apology to the stolen generation and come to where we are now. And in fact, there was a launch uh, last year of, uh, you know, the Territory's stolen generation scheme under closing the gap. And, you know, there are all these kinds of improvements in in sort of uh, policy, but you do you do have to be authentic. You can't say that we've, you know, we've done everything well, you know, um, and I I think people appreciate that. Um, 
in, in your engagement. And now walking the talk. Mm. And in that speech too, which was terrific, you, you reference a, a book by Noel Pearson mm. uh, called Mission, is it? Mm. Yeah. And you talk about or you discuss his, uh, his notion of this soft power advantage that Australia has. Yeah. And you also cite the fact that we are in the top 10 on the soft power index. Mm. And there's three elements to that sort of soft power advantage. So if you could just discuss those and how do you think, what, what, do, what work do we need to do in terms of utilizing and better playing to that soft power advantage? Yeah. He, he talks about sort of the elements of, you know, like our rich First Nations history, uh, the fact that we, you know, we are adorned with, um, the, the benefits of having, you know, a Westminster system from our British colonial days and also, you know, the wonderful richness of having a multicultural society. And I mean, they are truly, you know, great soft power assets for, for Australia. They're, they are, they're important in the way that we engage. And I think, you know, as I said, the, the current government's commitment now to establishing, uh, you know, a, an office of First Nations engagement will be Something that I think you know people in our region have have already noticed. Um, I, I know um, uh, there's already been some exchanges with uh, the New Zealand government, for instance, on on that issue. Uh, so I, I think those types of those types of issues will kind of resonate with with countries in our region um, as as you know as important to our our soft power. It's interesting because you know. I, I think at various times we've had a great deal of focus on soft power in in our foreign mm, policy, yeah. and then other times not mm. not as much. Mm. Um, but it is, yeah, I think it's one of those really fundamentally important elements that you know, again, building those people to people links is is important in those times of crisis. You know, um, addressing those trans um, boundary issues, you you can't do that unless you really understand your your neighbours well. And it's not just about um, those sort of big S security issues. It's really the the human security issues that are very important. And, you know, when you think about, well, in, even in our region in the Pacific, you know, most nations there will identify climate change as their, you know, their primary security concerns. You really have to kind of, you know, uh, uh, look at what are, what are countries in your region saying is important to them and how do you engage them on those issues? Can I ask, you spoke there around um, how the domestic underpins the, the foreign. I, I completely agree with you. Um, and the importance of engaging our Indigenous First Nations communities to become involved. To the young Indigenous woman out there listening to you today, what, what advice do you have for her about how she can get involved and how she can make an impact and make a difference? Is it just a matter of joining the foreign service and, and, and hoping to have a career like yours? What, what other things could she do? I think, um, you know, increasingly we're seeing, uh, young Indigenous Australians involved in all sorts of, uh, careers. And, and, you know, when I was younger, I think, you know, there would have been sort of a perception that yes, going into a, you know, a government job, you know, and pursuing a government career was a very sort of, you know, um, good solid <laughs> uh, career path. I, I, I think now there's obviously such a great deal of interest in, you know, exploring the corporate sort of opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, 
I, I was uh, involved in um, some conversations with, uh, you know, young Indigenous women in in the IT sector, in the digital sector. And, you know, I mean, they're at the absolute cutting edge. A lot of what they want to do is sort of tapping into kind of international markets. You know, I just think it's a really different sort of uh, space these days to explore. And but 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 there is that interest then, in, you know, if you are interested in those, you know, exploring international markets, being aware of, um, you know, international relations and what that means is, you know, is a good good thing to sort of pursue. So, yeah, I mean, if I, you know, was back in, in, in university again, I'd say to people, you know, have have those sort of really interesting kind of career anchors, but, you know, actually given Australia's place in the world, I think it's really important for everyone to know something about international relations. So, yeah. Mm. And and also to think not just nationally now but internationally. Yeah. And, and particularly with the explosion on the communication front, the explosion of the co- connectivity. Yeah. The, 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 our borders are not the limit anymore. Yeah. I mean, in the past it was the states, the That's state right. borders, and then it was the national borders, and now it's just the it, it, everyone, young people now think globally. Yes. And that's yeah. terrific. And so the endless possibilities. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, the endless possibilities. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that really came through in, um, in my work in the gender space was, in fact, yeah, like some of the biggest challenges, of course, we have to, uh, you know, trans border. I mean, they're, they're well beyond the borders that we that we have as a as a country. And you know, how you respond to those actually requires you to work in partnership with you know countries throughout not only our own region but sort of globally as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's it, you know, there's both great opportunities and dealing with some of our greatest challenges requires you to sort of you know take a global perspective. I think, yeah, mm. I think. Um- one of the things you mentioned before was about how we're on the right path. And I do agree with you. I think we are on the right trajectory and that's great. Um, but being on the right trajectory, forging the right path requires you to also look back and look at our history. So I'm wondering what you found in your uh, journey in looking backwards that have has helped you kind of understand where we've come from in terms of the journey forward. So I'll just give my personal um views on this particular issue. Of course, it's wonderful to see, as I said, like, you know, that that trajectory and, of course, the most recent development was, of course, on uh, election night when, of course, the incoming Prime Minister, Prime Minister Albanese, basically committed to the government to the full implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I did uh, a couple of weeks before sort of thinking about all of these issues, pick up a fantastic book. So I'm going to do a little recommendation of a book for <laughs> We love recommendations. Listeners. <laughs> listeners. But um, last year, Megan Davies, of course, who was um, instrumental in, in pulling people together, Professor Megan Davies, who's with um, University of New South Wales, um, instrumental in pulling together the Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, with a number of other Indigenous leaders, plus uh, George Williams, uh, who, again, is a well-renowned a constitutional lawyer, wrote this book called uh, Everything You Need to Know About uh, Uluru's Statement from the Heart. And I did have a piece which I did want to share with uh, listeners, um, which I think really just does give you a sense of that history. Um, and it is actually from, uh, it's a quote from Alfred Deakin, who was, of course, Australia's first federal attorney general and our second prime minister. And he said, uh, little more than a hundred years ago, Australia was a dark continent in every sense of the term. There was not a white man within its borders. 
In another century, the probability is that Australia will be a white continent with not a black or even dark skin amongst its inhabitants. The Aboriginal race has died out in the South and is dying fast in the North and the West, even where it's most gently treated. Other races are to be excluded by legislation if they are tinted to any degree. Listeners, Gay and I are sitting here shaking our heads. Um, it's th- those words are just really quite unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, you, when you think about, I mean, it's a, it's obviously set in a certain time and in a certain context in in, a, in Australian history. But you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, um, what what is being undertaken now with the full implementation of Uluru Statement from the Heart, with a commitment to have the inclusion of First Nations people in the Constitution. You know, it is in part a kind of reflection of trying to, to reconcile our history, to correct some of the, the past issues. And, you know, we saw a little bit of that, of course, with the Mabo decision and, um, you know, um, dispelling the myth of terra nullius, you know, this is just another step on that journey in terms of uh, trying to bring about sort of, you know, the recognition that, yes, there were, in fact, uh, people in this continent. Mm. Um, They they haven't died out. Um, You know, it's, it's been great to see, in fact, some some of the languages and culture actually being revived by yes, younger terrific. generations, yeah. you know. And I think, uh, I, you know, it's just really – I keep this in mind. I, you know, I, as I said, I really encourage people to kind of, you know, re- read the book, <laughs> share the journey. Um, and, 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 in fact, that's one of the really um, touching points of – if you read the Uluru Statement of the Heart – there's a request from uh, the the group to for Australians, all Australians, um, to share share in the journey of reconciliation with them. Mm. And just when you read those words, they must they're, they're incredibly confronting, and you must it does make you have an intake of breath. But does it empower you? Does it mobilise you? Yeah, I mean, I I, I look at it as you know, thinking about where most Australians are these days. And I feel, you know, that would be confronting not only for an Indigenous no. Australian, it's it's confronting for a non-Indigenous Australian. Yeah, I, in this... I, I was born overseas, I migrated to Australia and I'm confronted by that. Yeah, so I, so I think we're in a different space. So I try and, you know, um, uh, console myself with the fact that, that we are at a different time and I do think, you know, uh, Australians – and I'm talking both First Nations and and non-Indigenous Australians, are in a different space now. Mm. And so I just think there's probably a natural um, groundswell of support for the recognition of First Nations Australians in the Australian Constitution where we haven't had that previously because it's just the right thing to do. They mm. have existed here for, for thousands of years mm. and and why wouldn't we? Mm. So, I, yeah, I, I, it does... I, I don't get sort of upset about it. I, I just recognise it for what it was at the time, and as mm. I said, and where we are now, I think gives us an opportunity to, to, to basically reflect appropriately where First Nations should be in our constitution. Um, I have a page full of questions I want to <laughs> ask you, uh, but before we wrap up, I want to ask one, um, and that is, how do you deal with stress? How do you decompress? How do you deal with that little voice in your head that says, oh, really, Julianne, I don't know if you can do that. What, how do you deal with that? Um, 
It's funny because, yeah, the uh, theme for Reconciliation Week this year was be brave and make change. And I think as I've got uh, older, I've become slightly braver. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, quite often now I'll sort of try and back myself in more than perhaps I did when I I was younger. Um, But in terms of dealing, so when, when I have stressful moments, maybe in the past I might have shied away from them. Now I'm probably happier to confront them a little bit more. But I am very conscious of my own sort of energy levels and, you know, how, how I respond to stresses. So uh, my greatest stress relief is actually swimming. I think that might have come from, you know, as I said, my my grandfather was a pearl diver. So it's something about being in water that I find extremely um, relaxing. So, yeah, I, I swim pretty regularly as a, yeah, just a way of kind of, yeah, mellowing out a little. <laughs> and how did you become braver? <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know. You just throw yourself into the opportunity. So, yeah, as I said when I when I did find out I was, you know, being appointed ambassador, I thought, "Oh, okay, this is really now happening. <laughs> what do you do?" And and I just think throw yourself into it. You know, you you'll be surprised at what you can do. So, um yeah, give you give yourself the chance of 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 proving that you can do it. I love that. Lean into the challenge. Lean in. Be brave. Mm. Make change. Be brave. Make Julianne, change. Julianne, it's just been absolutely amazing to speak to you today. Thank you. I see the passion radiating from you, <laughs> and it's just wonderful to see. Um, you've been a real role model, a trailblazer, clearly for girls, for women, for Indigenous people. I want to thank you for everything that you've done throughout your career, and I hope we see much more of you to come. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. So before we go, Gay, I want to ask you, what were your key takeaways from this conversation with Julianne? For me, the the, ta- the key takeouts were the importance of family and the, the role and the power of family instilling those in instilling those values and also in terms of providing that support and that uh, that freedom to think big. So that was the key takeout for me, one of the key takeouts for me. The other was the the need to have a support network around you. She, she spoke about feeling pretty down, particularly in those early days in Delhi, I think, in those early days in, in uh, the department and how she had this amazing team around her, giving her support and cheering her on and encouraging her to do better. So having that support team and finally the, the bravery and the need to be brave. How about you? Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. So um, finding your tribe, finding that supportive network that's going to help you get through. Um, It's also around the early talk uh, that she spoke about in terms of community and family and the values that have clearly been instilled in her that have resonated throughout her career. Um, And, yes, absolutely, that, that idea of being brave, leaning into the challenge, persevering in the face of challenge, that's something that really resonates with me. I try to make myself, uh, put myself in a position where I'm challenged every day. This, doing this podcast with you is a challenge that I love, but I think it's really important because I think we need to become comfortable in that space of being uncomfortable. That's how we grow. That's where we grow. So I loved that. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Great conversation. 
Thanks for joining us today. We're really grateful you've chosen to spend your time with Gay and I on the Women in National Security podcast. Please keep your feedback and comments coming on natsecpod at anu.edu.au. I love reading all of your emails, so thank you. And before we go, I just want to say be brave, make change, and until next time, thanks for listening.